everybody in serial killer country. My name is Brittany Ransom. And my name is Brian Joyner. And this is When Killers Get Caught, a podcast devoted to deep dives into the lives and psyches of the killers we love to learn about. Each week we'll discuss something new and interesting in the serial killer world. Then we'll discuss one well-known or lesser-known killer and go deep into their childhood, lives, methodology, and most importantly, how they got caught. And then, because most serial killer fans love a little spook, Brian will lead us down the road of the paranormal into something he found to be particularly creepy. So, one thing that we've been trying, because updates in the serial killer world are kind of few and far between. And we started this on last week's podcast, and I kind of want to continue with it, is that Brian and I are going to find a story that interested us this week and tell each other about them. Last week, I think we were just trying to make the other laugh maybe i don't know probably <laughs> uh but this week's story for me uh is local to where you and i live Ooh. and so that's why this one kind of struck me so in 1977 a woman was found in delaware uh she was spotted by a boy riding his bicycle in june near uh newcastle delaware mm-hmm. For years, all police had was a cause of death, homicide, a description of her. She's about 5'3", dark blonde, and somewhere between 40 and 55 years old. And they really had nothing else until now. So after four decades, they have identified the remains of this woman. Um, Her name is Mary Petrie Heiser. She was 50 years old, and she was the wife to a retired police officer in philadelphia okay right uh he was part of the philadelphia police department highway patrol during the 50s and 60s and i guess they were kind of like the what's that basketball team that does the cool tricks the harlem globetrotters yeah they were like the globetrotters but cops and they would do all sorts of like shows and local like air, like theaters and stadiums and stuff. What? And yeah. Well, so Heiser got hurt. Her husband, mm-hmm. uh, William Heiser Sr. got hurt. And so he had to retire from being a police officer. And he became, what do you think his job was? As he, when he retired from a police officer? Mm-hmm. A teacher? Mm-mm. It's one of the number one serial killer jobs. A truck driver. Yep. He became a truck driver. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, they, and so after his wife was murdered, he relocated to South Daytona Beach. And he actually died in 2006 from cancer. Um, they don't know entire, like, they know it was homicide, you know, DNA records they've been able to, to to her but here's the worst part about this after dad killed her he told the kids that she had like run off with some guy so these children grew up their whole life thinking that their mom was just this awful woman who abandoned them when really dad killed her and left her in a ditch in delaware that's terrible yeah um she also worked part-time at the uh ashbourne country club in cheltenham pennsylvania which is also near where I lived. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, this is like some local horrible stuff that happened. That is freaking terrible. It oh was. God, excuse me. 
I just feel so bad. I'm like, at least they have some kind of closure, but poor kids. Yeah. Yeah. They're probably like 40 something, 50 years old now. And now they find out that their mom wasn't a horrible person. No, your dad was a horrible guy. And also, if you look like right next to you on the thing. Will, yeah, the book saw, is here. Yes, yeah, all on Fulan Devise. So you are welcome to read that. Okay. I but got, yeah, tell me about your story. So that's something that was found out over the last couple of weeks. Okay. Let me pull it up. Hold on. All right. Mine is not local. Okay. At all. Um, Mine actually comes from the UK. Mm. So <laughs> I guess they're still in. Uh, covid lockdown over mm-hmm. there um so a group of ghost ghost hunters broke their lockdown okay their their covid rules and they went to go see a haunted house <laughs> of course they did yeah um I just watched a movie on Shutter today mm. about a group of people who could try to do a seance over a Zoom call. And what? I'm like, yes, it's on there. It, it was a weird. And they somehow accidentally, you know, brought about a demon. That's always, happen- always happens when people do seances. Oh, okay. But yeah, I'm like, well, they, just think about that right now. Like, this is what kind of world we're in. 2021. People are breaking quarantine to go ghost hunting. People are doing seances over Zoom. This is weird. (laughs) It says uh, about, it says 12 men and women. Okay. Where, so it was like three different groups of ghost hunters. Oh, geez. This this, was like the whole taps. Yeah. In this one house. Um, Okay. I mean. Yeah. It's like, so. Oh, but wait, that's more than eight people. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there are 12 people in this, so I don't, I don't know. Well, the um, rule in the States is, like, no more than eight people at any gathering. Yeah, and so they, they definitely breached it. I had 12 people there. Um, okay, well, here's a really important question. Mm-hmm. Did they find any evidence? No, it doesn't say that. Ah. Oh. Sorry, no. All they found was arrested, getting yeah, arrested? Yeah, all they found was, um, yeah, being taken in. Or they, they I think, I'm not going to, were they arrested? I know the police called them, so... There was this great one over in the UK, or was it France? It was over in Europe. And this guy had like taken out like a stuffed dog because he was so tired of being stuck in the house. And the rule was that like at like 4 p.m. you had to go inside and he hated it. Mm -hmm. So he was taking this fake dog on fake walks at like 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. No. So So people are like, I mean, I can only imagine if we were in lockdown, lockdown, like they are, as long as they were. We probably should have been longer, but. We've been out for almost a year now. Yeah, it says um, says there were no permissions granted to anyone to be in the building, which was in poor state of repair. Oh, so they and, also broken entering and yeah. trespassed. Yeah, and as a result, it was an incredibly dangerous place to be, with parts of the building subject to collapse. Uh, when checking the building, it quickly became clear that a number of people were inside and others outside. Three groups were eventually located. Um. So yeah, it was like what they, was they, this house? They got fined. So it's a apparently it's a haunted house. Um, let me see. Where's it at? Where's it at? Where's it at? I know it's in um. Goodness, Cheshire. No, is that it? Cheshire. Yeah, and that's probably one of them. 
because okay. it, it states different places where the people are from. Like some, oh, like okay. some of the people who drove from like West Yorkshire. Oh, and yeah, some drove from Derbyshire. Oh wow! And yeah, it's like so they all just drove out here, and I guess they didn't plan on like being there together, but they. Okay, so three separate groups, yeah. of ghost hunters all showed up at the same house at the same time. It is. It is Chester. It's near Chester. That's okay. Where the house is. Um. But yeah, here's a picture of the house. It looks like an old haunted house. You know, wait a second. There you go. Give me that landscape. That looks horrible. Right? And you can see there's like graffiti on the side of it and everything. So As they are wont to do. Yeah. So, I mean, it looks like, a, it looks like it's haunted. So. Well, there but you yeah. go. Yeah, there goes. Um, that is kind of funny, though, in the sense that like three different groups made that decision completely separate from each other. I would love to know what was so important about that house that made them want to do that. They were probably just bored and they wanted to say, they said, hey, I'm going ghost hunting today. Yeah. Is, is that what we do? We just say, hey, I'm going ghost hunting today? Yeah. I like, feel like you need to prepare a little bit. I mean, it's like, um, have you, have you, have you heard of Randall, Randall Nautica? Yeah. Okay. It's like that. Sort of. It's like you just, you know, you just well, like I'm bored. Random article was kind of cool and creepy until those kids found that lady in a okay, suitcase. Yeah, but this, then it got a little too real. But yeah, but this was like you know during quarantine, or you know people would go out and like, hey, you know, I, I got still my friend. Want to do it? Yeah, I know. Um, people would go out and they were like, hey, I'm bored. Let's go, you know, look for something interesting today. Random, remember random, not today. So. You know, they were just bored in the house, in the house bored, bored in the house, in the house bored. I think that's a great premise for a movie on Shudder. What, bored in the house? No, everybody's like, they're like, I'm so bored. I've been in quarantine for like eight months, a year and a half. Who knows how long some people have been in quarantine now at this point. Mm -hmm. They're like, we're going to go. And then inadvertently, they all end up at this place and then they're all locked in this haunted house. Bam. Oh. If only you had just stayed in quarantine like you were supposed to. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> Someone was at to work. Excuse me, ma'am. That's because you're a medical person, so you have to work. Yeah, exactly. No. When Killers Get Caught is sponsored by the Magic Class Boutique. Now, why does that name sound so familiar? Well, it's because it's a business ran by our very own Brittany. That's right. The Magic Class Boutique is not only a black-owned business, it's a woman-owned as well. This is a jewelry company that makes some pretty awesome earrings, ranging from cute little sushis to spooky mermaid skeletons. There are even adorable self-defense keychains for those just-in-case moments. And introducing the Serial Collection. This set of earrings is based off of serial killers and the official merch for the podcast. This collection features everything a serial killer would need to pull off their crimes, from hunting knives at the beginning of their crimes to warding keys for when they eventually get caught. Check out themagicclasp.com today where you can use our promo code CAUGHT to receive 15% off of your online order. That's T-H-E-M-A-G-I-C-C-L-A-S-P dot com and use promo code CALT for 15% off and make sure you tell Brittany 
that I sent you. But anyway, so this week's person, I kind of brought it back to America, but for a point, for a reason. Okay. Uh, I realized that in TikTok, uh, on TikTok, I discussed the different kinds of serial killers, and I've discussed a lot of comfort killers, like Ray and Faye Copeland from episode seven, or Bell Gunnis from episode two. Those are people killing for money or things to make them comfortable. I've discussed hedonistic killers like Ian Brady and Myra Henley. I've discussed a power and control killer, Ivan Milad. But there are two that I've kind of abandoned, uh, the visionary and the missionary. So I'm going to discuss a visionary killer today and probably one of the classic cases um, for people who are not well-versed on this. Visionary serial killers are delusional and they believe that some other power is commanding them to kill and that they are working for a higher purpose. Okay. And one of the classic cases would be Herbert Mullen, uh, a man who believed if he killed, he'd save California from a massive earthquake that he was convinced would destroy the state. Hmm. It seems, you know, I mean, if he didn't kill people, he's just sacrificing for the ancient volcano god. Well, he believed that other people should be sacrificing. Yeah, he was sacrificing. He other was people sacrificing to the- other people to the ancient volcano god. Exactly. That's how they do. What do you mean? Well, you'll see how very much his his line of thinking actually was very much like that. Okay. So, uh, Herbert Mullen was born April 4th, 1947 in Salinas, California. This is coincidentally the anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. That massive one that destroyed San Francisco. Oh. Uh, Something that he was well aware of and thought was divine prominence. Uh. He was born to two Catholic parents, Jean and Bill Mullen, and his own father described their home as oppressively religious, mainly due to Herbert's mother, who was a devout Catholic. He had one older sister named Patricia, and his father was a World War II vet and was uh, described as stern, but not abusive. However, he did show Herbert all of his medals and taught him how to use a gun at a young age. In 1952, the family moved to a small farming town near San Francisco. And then when he was 16, uh, Herbert's family moved again to Santa Cruz. They lived in his aunt and uncle's cabin in Boulder Creek until they were able to find a house in Felton, which is a small town in Santa Cruz County. They enrolled him in San Lorenzo Valley High School, where he made a lot of friends. He played football. He was a really popular guy. He had a steady girlfriend, and he was even moted most likely to succeed in his senior year in high school. Oh, wow. Look at him. Then in 1965, when he was 18 years old, his best friend, Dean Richardson, was killed in a car accident. This was the summer after they graduated. This was a major event in Herbert's life, and he actually built a shrine to his best friend in his bedroom. Uh, And then he began to worry that his inability to get over his friend's death was a sign that he might be homosexual. Just so, I mean. Even though he had a girlfriend. Um, I'm, I'm taking that as partially, well, I spoke to you about this the other day off camera, that I, I, told, I called it the, the schizophrenic time. Oh, right, right, right. Which right, is yeah. that schizophrenia is known to start in late teens, early 20s which is the primary time that we are going to be discussing Herbert Mullen's life. 
So this is kind of what they would think of as sort of a trigger moment for him in his life. This is a big issue. He didn't know how to handle it. He just, for some reason, he didn't have the tools to get over this. Um, and he began to read about reincarnation, natural disasters, religions, and it all kind of became an obsession for him. And this would also be the time that people began to notice a little bit of his mental decline. Mm-hmm. Um, he entered Cabrillo College in the fall of 1965 to study engineering which is also when he started using drugs and self-medicating with marijuana and LSD. At 18, he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, but he was allowed to go to college as long as he continued his medication. He finished his first year of school. He got a summer job with the county road crew. He broke up with his long-term girlfriend, Loretta, for about six months, and they got back together in 1967, and then they got engaged. Oh, nice. So, like, it it seems like he's determined that he's had an illness. He has a mental illness, right. but he's got, like, a plan. Yeah, he's doing something about it, though. So, you know, he's trying to help himself. Um, now, the thing is, though, in that summer of 1967, when he got back together with Loretta, uh, he also started experimenting with drugs more. And he also began to fixate on Eastern religions. He did manage to graduate with a two-year degree in road engineering, and he enrolled in San Jose State College. That fall of 67, he became active in the protests against the war in Vietnam. He changed his major to philosophy and became like kind of a hippie. (laughs) As one would do. Then he withdrew from San Jose State College, registered as a conscientious objector, has an affair with a man, cheating on Loretta. And then after getting violent with her, they break up and he comes out as bisexual. Okay. So still nothing too crazy. April of 1968, he gets arrested for possession of marijuana. Uh, He pleads out to a lesser case, getting only probation, gets a job at Goodwill Industries, and he manages a Goodwill uh, in San Luis Obispo, California. He actually gets granted that conscientious objector status in October of 1968 after his dad wrote a letter to the draft about how his son was very peacefully minded. Oh, so he, he, okay. Yeah, his dad had to help. The Selective Service Board credited his time that he was working at Goodwill toward the required alternative service. So if you were granted conscientious objector, you still had to do like community service or something for the good of America. Okay. Um, if you weren't going to join the war. That was just a part of the time period. Okay, I guess. <laughs> the look you just gave me, though. I'm like, I ain't doing shit. What are you talking about? Are you past the age where they could call you in now? I don't know. Probably not. I mean, you are a young, strapping man. I am a 32. <laughs> I don't know. I forget what age you suddenly become too old for it. I think it's 35. Oh, so listen, if uh, World War Three breaks out, you can still be called in. Don't jinx us, please. <laughs> so things were going all right for Herbert. Until February of 1969, he announces to his family he's going to India to study yoga. He's going to be a yogi. Instead, he moves to, okay, I'm going to mess this name up, but it's Sebastopol, California. I'd never heard of this city in my life. Normally, cities in California are Spanish. I don't know what that is. It's probably Spanish. (laughs) But either way. He moves into a trailer on the ranch owned by his sister and her husband. Maybe after a month 
about a month after he moves in, he's at dinner in their house and he begins imitating his brother-in-law's moves. So this is known as echopraxia or echokinesis, and it's an involuntary repetition of another person's actions, and it is a sign of schizophrenia. And this was a sign to his family. He is not getting better, and they begged him to admit himself into a treatment facility. Okay. What happened to being a, a yogi? Did nothing. He just, he moved in with his sister and called it a day. Yeah. Well, you want him to be a yogi? Yeah. How do you wait? Wait a second. You know that he ends up murdering a slew of people in Santa Cruz, right? Yeah, but maybe I can change the story and (laughs) by manifesting. (laughs) I'm just gonna manifest the fact that Herbert Mullen didn't kill 13 people. All right, then, but a yogi instead. No, unfortunately, he did not. He didn't even take the trip. He just he made it like an hour away. Okay, that's as far as he traveled. But um, at the urging of his family, he voluntarily committed himself to the Mendocino State Hospital, and he stayed there for six weeks. There he was treated for schizophrenia, aggravated by drug abuse, and treated with antipsychotic medication. So, wait, so his drug abuse made it worse? Yes. Okay. It's pretty common. Okay. Uh, a lot of people with mental illnesses self-medicate as a means to feel better. Right, right. Yeah, uh, makes sense. Yeah. When I'll eventually tell you like how much he was abusing LSD. It's it's a lot. Mm. But uh he was only there for about six weeks. Uh because he didn't think it was doing anything for him, and his doctors listed him as uncooperative, and they also wrote in his chart they gave him a prognosis of poor. He checked himself out May 9th, 1969. So this is the beginning of the story right now. Okay. And we already have a poor diagnosis. He was already, yeah. It's, this is a really, I guess, kind of a tragic tale. Mm. So that summer, 69, he went to Lake Tahoe with another patient from the facility. The two of them found jobs as dishwashers at a gambling resort known as Harvey's Wagon Wheel. Uh, this bit of stability only lasted a couple months. As soon as he went home in August of 1969, he got in trouble again. This time for pulling a knife on a forest ranger who told him to leave a park. He did not stab the forest ranger and he was taken to county jail, but he was not booked and was released to his family. Oh, okay. Shortly after this, his family thought that if he could get his drug use under control, he would be able to get the schizophrenia under control. Right. So um, they kind of, I don't want to say bullied, but uh, what do we call that? Positive? Oh, like intervention? Did he inter- sort him- of. They, they convince him to, uh, he goes to a community drug center in Santa Cruz, inpatient. Uh, and that's September of 1969. Sometime while he was there, he began, and like this was multiple sources that said this term. So I just ritually burning his genitals with cigarettes. Yes. What? <laughs> yep. No. That that was the direct term, ritually burning. Uh, yes. I'm sorry. So that's September of 1969. A lot happens in October of 1965. He leaves the drug rehab center. 
He applies to be on public assistance since he's got no job and no real place to live. He goes to his old manager at the Goodwill store and Herbert tells the store manager he's hearing voices and receiving messages. He also made sexual advances toward one of his friends who then called Herbert's uncle. Um, Herbert's uncle was a doctor and immediately informed the local sheriff that his nephew was having a psychotic episode. That month, he gets involuntarily committed to the psychiatric ward of San Luis Obispo County Hospital. A doctor there says, and this is a direct quote, as a result of a mental disorder, he is a danger to others, a danger to himself, and gravely disabled. Hmm. This is the first time that they have said that his mental illness is a disability, and I think that is a drastic shift. Right, yeah. Um, while there, Herbert starts sending his letters to his parents and begging them to write to him. Uh, that's November. By now, he's been there for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. He ends up getting treated totally for about eight weeks, and they diagnose him for, now this is the third time, as a paranoid schizophrenic. At the end of November, his family drive to see him, and he tells them he's homosexual, um, I guess fully coming out. Mm-hmm. On November 23rd, 1969, he's discharged from San Luis Obispo County Hospital, contingent upon him attending sessions at the Santa Cruz Mental Health Clinic near his parents' house. Wait, this is the third hospital. This is the third hospital he's been released from. Uh, Okay. And he has to go to another one. Well, they're saying, at this point, they're saying we can treat him outpatient. Right. And we've set up something at another clinic near where your your parents live because they're releasing him to his parents. Right. So it'll make it easier. Right. His prognosis listed now is grave. Oh, that's worse than poor. Yes, indeed. Oh, so why Um, release him then? And to his defense, Herbert did originally try and follow the guidelines. Right. Um, The problem is with the illness he had and the time that he had it, we didn't know nearly as much about it as we do now. Um, he probably shouldn't have been released on his own no, at this a, point in his life, like you said. Yeah. Um, by January of 1970, so literally a month later, he's not keeping up with his sessions at the clinic. He's not going to group, group therapy. He is taking his medicine intermittently. And we learned from the Elisa Lamb case that yeah. some of these medications you cannot take off and on. You no. have to be consistent or it can cause even more aggressive horrible you know violent behaviors the only thing that herbert is able to seem to be able to do in the beginning of 1970 is keep a job he's a dishwasher at the holiday inn okay so march 1970 so he manages to keep that up for about two three months he starts getting into fights with his dad oh um really like real you know very much pushing the boundaries. And finally, his dad is like, you got to go. Mm-hmm. He moves out of his parents' house into a cheap hotel paid for by the state assistance checks he's getting. He meets this guy named Eddie Lawrence, who introduces him to the commune life in Santa Cruz. He's super into it. But the other residents there are like, no, we don't. We don't want him to live here. <laughs> uh, something's off about this guy. Yep. So in the summer of 1970, a friend he met at the commune named Pat Brown was like, I'm going to Hawaii. Do you want to go with me? And Herbert's like, absolutely. It's Hawaii. Because who had turned in a trip to Hawaii? Yeah. Pat abandons Herbert in Hawaii because Herbert's acting weird. So he just leaves him there? 
Yes. He, he leaves him in Hawaii. Yes. And Herbert admits himself to the mental health clinic in Maui. Oh, goodness. Okay. He is examined by psychiatrists there. And this time they diagnose him with schizoaffective schizophrenia. So I feel like now is the point where I need to talk about the different diagnoses Please. because we're hearing so many different ones. Yes. Um, so he's got three different, very similar diagnoses. And first thing you got to know is there's multiple kinds of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, as a teen and an early adult, he's diagnosed as just schizophrenic, which is a mental illness characterized by hallucinations, delusion, disordered thinking, behavior that impairs daily functions. He's seen as a severe case at that point, but not debilitating yet. Then he gets diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic. With paranoid schizophrenia, the delusions are fixed. Um, And the person is, as it states, very paranoid. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of person who thinks that, you know, like the tinfoil hat, like they're listening in on me. The FBI is out to get me. They have a fixed delusion that's kind of the center of their problem. Okay. Now, in the clinic in Maui, he gets this third diagnosis, schizoaffective schizophrenia, which we would now, in 2021, call schizoaffective disorder. This one is, you you have some of the schizophrenic things, like the delusions and disordered thinking, but it's also connected to other disorders like depression or bipolar disorder. So at this point, more than likely, what probably freaked out Pat Brown is him swinging from high to low with his outburst. Ah, uh, okay. Um, at this point now, I mean, the first time it started was only a couple years ago. He was 18. Uh, his illness is not only progressing, it's progressing fast. Mm-hmm. And he is rapidly declining. And like I said, so I, I really don't think in this day and age... He would have been allowed to just travel freely. No. Even in this situation, it takes some time for the hospital to be willing to release him. They're not willing to release him until July of 1970. And he went to Hawaii in June. So at least about a month. Oh, my God. Yeah, no. Um, He has to write his family for money to essentially buy him a plane ticket Mm -hmm. to get back to California. He moves back in with his family on July 30th. And he gets arrested for being under the influence of drugs and possession of illegal things. Oh my god! <laughs> Almost immediately. I, I just feel like and it might sound bad, but I feel like at this point, like a mental institution would be like like in inpatient, like would be best for him. It's rough. On one hand, it feels like you don't want to limit people's freedom. Yeah, but. But on the other hand, like, this is someone who's just deeply unwell and, like, people just keep passing him off back and forth to other people. Yeah. And it is not helping him. It's not. And, like, Like, while he's in jail, they don't give him his medications, which is horrible. Oh. Um, He starts singing at the top of his lungs for hours and the prison uh, decides to lock this as an emergency. And they sent him to the county hospital where he's committed again on a mint, like I forget that's called um, a 10, 1090, 1050. Forget what it's called. Um, the charges get dropped. He's released again um, under a California law that says that you can't hold a mental patient longer than 72 hours. Oh, okay. That's because it can be used to 
um, detain people unlawfully sometimes. Oh, okay. 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 Got it. Herbert is 23. This is where we are right now. And to his, like, to his defense, he tries to get his life on track mm. again. He applies for readmission to Cabrillo College to study psychology this time, but he can't keep up with his counseling appointments. Um, he is very mad at his parents. He's living with them again, and he blames them for the fact that he has a mental illness. He changes his life insurance policy so that if he dies, UNICEF will be his beneficiary. Oh, my gosh. Okay. He gets a job driving trucks for Goodwill, has a couple of, you know, affairs with other people. Um, during the winter of 1970, 1971, he starts changing himself physically. He shaves his head, goes on a macrobiotic diet, loses a bunch of weight, begins wearing a big black sombrero and speaking in a fake Mexican accent. Okay. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, March 1971, he spends 10 days in jail for public intoxication and resisting arrest. They dismiss his public drunk charge. April 1971, the hospital decides to close the case in Santa Cruz because he just hasn't shown up for any appointments in about a year. Mm-hmm. Um, in May, he moves to San Francisco into a crappy apartment full of alcoholics, drug addicts, and people who are also mentally ill. Okay, yeah, the people you're not supposed to be, you should not be around right now. And he makes a friend. Yes. Alan Hansen. Still, the people you should not be around right now. <laughs> he and Alan bond over reincarnation, and they begin discussing that the voices that he's hearing are actually telepathy telling Herbert that he's been chosen by God to do something very special. Oh, okay. He also picks up a fascination with Leonardo da Vinci during this time. While studying in the library one day, he learns that he was born on the anniversary of Albert Einstein's death. And that really solidified for him that he was born for greatness. Almost that maybe he might be the reincarnation of Albert Einstein. All right, look, me and the rock are Tauruses, okay? (laughs) That That doesn't make me think that, hey, I can go out and be a wrestling superstar now. But I mean, he's still alive. Yeah. Exactly. So what? So what? you weren't reincarnated as the Rock no, because but the Rock's I alive. I could have. He's older than me, so you know. I <laughs> got some of his wrestling prowess or something like oh that. Oh my goodness! So September of 1971. Now 24 years old, uh, he takes a job at the Newman Herman Gym and gets into amateur boxing. Oh, cool! This actually proves to be a good outlet for him, and he doesn't get in trouble at all. Yeah, it's like a, it's like um, I've had a therapist before, and they do say like exercise and stuff like that. It's really good for your mental health. And Honestly, just, any outlet you have can be really good. Absolutely, that's why so many people started doing creative stuff during COVID, like sports. lockdown. Well, just like doing sports. I mean, like I started making things out of plastic and mm-hmm. resin and stuff like that, and and I use my outlet to skate and yeah hey people with my shoulders oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean this is all really good like having an outlet at all for you to express yourself is really great you know uh he's doing so well that in march of 1972 they give him a permit to box in a golden gloves competition oh nice she's doing better good you know i know where it's going but (sighs) well unfortunately 
he doesn't get to compete in that competition because while he's like sparring and practicing, he won't stop attacking the other person and trainers like don't want to work with him. So essentially he's having impulse control issues. Yeah. But so, so like he's practicing and like fighting with somebody else. Yeah. And so, you know, when they say like, stop and they say like, give the other person a break or call it off. Mm-hmm. He, he won't stop. Going, keeps going. He going. keeps, okay. he keeps hitting them. Okay. 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 I just um, got confused. My brain shut down for a second. <laughs> I got you. So it's September of 1972. He moves back in with his parents, gets a job as a bus boy in a restaurant and he stops taking his medication again. He almost had a he had a almost a good year. This time he starts to fixate on new things. He's real mad at his dad and he says the voices were telling him to kill his father. Publicly, a large earthquake is predicted to hit California that might cause mass casualties. And this is another detail that is something else he becomes fixated on. He later says that he'd been receiving telepathic messages from his father that tell him to kill someone. So, October 13th, 1972, he does. He's driving and he passes a transient man, mm-hmm. Lawrence White, walking alone on this winding road in Santa Cruz. He stops his car ahead of him and pretends to have car troubles. And when Lawrence stops to help Herbert, he beats him to death with a baseball bat in his car and leaves the body on the side of the road. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was out that night. That night was just uh, I went like it, I guess you couldn't say you wouldn't say it was like premeditated, but he did plan on killing someone that night. Right? This will be your line of thinking where you're going right now is going to become very important when we get to trial. Okay, but first we have to talk about the murders. <laughs> October twenty fourth, nineteen seventy two. Only a couple weeks later, he picks up a woman named Mary Gilfoyle. She also she went to Cabrillo College and she was running late for an interview. He offers her a ride, stabs her in the chest and the back, drives to a field, cuts open her body, and spreads her insides all along the hillside. Okay. Yep. It's a new take on the hills have eyes. She. <laughs> sorry. The hills have innards. Yes. She wouldn't be found for another four months. Oh, goodness. November 2nd, 1972, All Souls Day. Herbert goes to St. Mary's Catholic Church and confesses his previous two murders. He's in the little confessional booth mm-hmm. and he thinks he's alone. So at some point he realizes that there's a priest in one of the booths. Yeah. And he starts trying to like get in the guys, you know. Now this this man is Father Henry to me, to me, to my is T O M E I. I feel bad, Father Henry. To me. Um, because Herbert freaks out and starts trying to stab Father Henry. A church parishioner actually walks in on the attack, screams, and runs away and calls the cops. Oh, okay. Um, She did get a glimpse of him, but she described him as a blur of black and blood. This is the first murder that the community is really aware of. Wait, so he got... He he killed the father. Oh yeah, he he brutally stabbed Father Henry oh, and runs away. Oh man! So see, the thing is, the drifter had been an elderly man and a drunk with really no family. Uh-huh. But the priest was a member of a community. He was a World War II veteran. 
religious people were like, is this like an attack from a Satanist cult? The police even went to the funeral hoping to see if the killer would, you know, show up at the funeral, the typical thing that they do. Uh huh. Only problem is Herbert is not killing like a typical no, killer at this point. No, not at all. Um, well, it seems like a random killing. It's not that odd that Herbert's third killing was a priest considering he has a lifetime of rage towards organized religion based around his sexual identity. Mm. Which is so interesting that I chose to write about this this week when <laughs> there is a song that just came out from oh a musician God. discussing the same thing. Or more so the music video discusses yeah. um, that feeling of being told by the church or, or the Christian church that you're going to go to hell for people. being the way that you are. Yeah. And so for Lil Nas X, apparently it came out in the desire to give the devil a lap dance. Herbert Mullen decided to stab a priest to death. I, still have I feel thing. like one of the two of them came up with a much more creative and uh, healthy outlet. Good job, Herbert. <laughs> no, not good job, <laughs> Herbert. Good job, Montero. I'm kidding. I haven't seen the video yet, though. You should. It's um, it's actually got a lot of depth to it. People are really freaking out over the like two screenshots of him, you know, busting it wide open with the devil. Oh, no. But there's a lot of other subtext that's quite lovely him being seduced by the serpent in the Garden of Eden, mm. who is himself. Wait, he's being seduced by himself? Yes. Listen, it's COVID. You can't be hiring other people to be in your music videos. <laughs> oh, no, I, I didn't mean like that. I don't I know it was like some type of other... Like, I, don't, I don't think it was that, I think, deep. though. But he's Adam, and he's being seduced by a serpent. Okay. See? And they try to blame Eve for everything. See? Not in this case. But yeah, so it's not too crazy that Herbert Mullen is against organized religion. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that whenever he would rebel against religion, he would also flip flop like really aggressively the uh, extreme. So then like after he would go through these phases of like, I hate Christianity, I hate my parents. Then he would like walk around carrying a Bible and talking about how he was going to join the priesthood. Oh, God. He okay. was very much flipping like... And see, that's why I don't doubt the when they said the schizoaffective disorder, mm -hmm. potentially a little bit of bipolar disorder. His mm -hmm. he had real high highs and real low lows. Yeah, but that's like that's like a change of character right there. Just... Absolutely. God. Okay. During this time, though, the voices changed for Herbert. He told the police that he was being told by Albert Einstein that he was the designated leader, and that. Um, and now his victims were giving him permission to kill them as a sacrifice to save California. The leader of what? Routinely, <laughs> he says the words designated leader. Okay. Okay. After killing the priest, it seemed to have clicked for him the real source of his anger. His evangelical parents, specifically his father. November 1970. So it's, it's weird, though. Remember I told you he's slipping back and forth, mm -hmm. right? His dad was in the military. So on one hand, he's like, my dad's in the military. You were this like, you told me all these horrible things you did in the war. But then November 1972, he tries to join the Coast Guard <laughs> to almost, it seems like, get his father's approval. Do you think that like him killing the priest was like him killing his dad in a way? We'll see. Ugh, there's a lot of questions about his his motive. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, 
Well, I said he tried to join the Coast Guard, but he failed the psychological evaluation. Of course. Um, which put him in, lapsed him into another bit of paranoia about his father conspiring against him. Um, but the hippies and the war resistors were to blame. They brainwashed him into giving him drugs that destroyed his mind. Um, this time, however, he decided he was going to kill people who ruined his life. There's a gap that happens in the killing here, but I'm, I'll explain it to you later because it's really more important in the trial. In December, he buys a gun. This is 72. The, after reading uh, the book Einstein on Peace, he tells the police that he needed the gun because he was one-third Scandinavian. And in the book, every adult male in Switzerland was in a militia and had to keep a gun for protection. So he's like, I'm Scandinavian. I should have a gun too. Okay. This- January 15th, 1973. He manages to pass the physical and mental exams to join the Marine Corps. Awesome. Not awesome. How in the world <laughs> did he pass the psyche valve? Wait, where is it? what is it? The Marine Corps? Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Those are some crazy guys out there. Yo. <laughs> That's my first thought when I saw it. I was like, wait a second. He passed? <laughs> but he messes it up for himself. So in the last phase of whenever you work for the government, which happened for me when I worked for the government, Mm. you have to give them permission to do a very extensive background check. And Herbert refused to sign the documents, giving them permission to seize criminal records. He insisted it wasn't important and that the charges should have been dropped. So because he wouldn't comply with this final step, he was dismissed from the process. Yeah. I'm trying to just remember his... Everything. Um, remember, he got what he got arrested for. It was one of his public drunkenness mm-hmm. and refusing. Also, any time he got arrested, even if the charges were dismissed, those would be on his record. Okay, yeah, but I'm just saying, like they weren't that bad. I agree with you, but in his head, they were. Yeah. So January nineteenth, nineteen seventy three, Herbert's dad tells him again, "You need to go." So he moves into another crappy apartment. His parents were kind of tired of them, him constantly criticizing them and criticizing them as parents. He was like, listen, I'm, I'm going to try and get into the army. And, and he started applying for a number of jobs. So remember I told you that he was fixated on the people who ruined his life. Mm-hmm. After about 2.5 months of dwelling on a man by the name of James Gianera, he decides he's going to kill him. So, in Herbert's mind, James represented everything that had messed up his life. James gave him the drugs that messed up his head. James had told him about the peace movement, which made society shun him. He even said that James had tricked him into buying land. And I'm like, how is that a trick? That's a a solid investment, Yeah, it is an investment. (laughs) Doesn't matter what you put there. Hey, it's almost making money. But regardless, January 25th, 1973, he decides... I'm doing it. He goes to James's old house and a woman named Kathy Francis lives there now with her kids and her husband. Her husband was actually a drug dealer. So that's how he and James knew each other. Um, who was out in Berkeley, probably selling drugs to college kids. Cause that happens there. Mm-hmm. She tells him, Hey, well, Jim and his wife moved to the other side of town and gives him the address thinking that maybe Herbert was like a drug connection or it was something, you know, solid. Right. Herbert drives to Jim's new house. He gets let in with no issue because James remembers him. Herbert, however, is not okay. And he shoots him downstairs. 
James drags himself upstairs trying to get to his wife, who is taking a bath. He shoots both of them in the head, stabs them repeatedly. I couldn't get an exact tally when I was looking up articles. Just the word overkill. Okay. Repeated. So the two of them would be found later that day when uh, Jim's wife, Joan, her, the grandmother, her mm. mother returned after babysitting their infant daughter. Mm. I know. Then he drives back to Kathy Francis's house and kills her and her two children, David and Damon, who are four and nine years old. Why? Because they knew. They didn't know nothing. They were, they were, they saw him. So what? Everybody saw you that day. Well, this is five people in one day. Man, you <laughs> the community freaks out but the police spin this as what they call a drug burn because both Bob Francis and Jim Gianero were known drug dealers mm-hmm. Bob is cleared as a suspect and gives the police a long list of potential enemies of both he and Jim to the cops but of course Herbert isn't on the list because the last time Jim had even seen Herbert had been the summer of 1971 when Herbert did 10 tabs of acid I don't know what that is. I have to explain (laughs) this to people who don't necessarily understand drugs. Let me try. One tab of acid is how much? Like regular people might take like anywhere from a half to like two. So for a tall skinny man to take 10 is an exorbitant amount of drugs. That's like me and I'd be gone for... (laughs) Like, honestly, I I have a friend who casually does acid and my friend has told me it's not even worth it to do that much because at some point your brain just goes, no, we (laughs) cannot process any more drugs. (laughs) So, like, I don't know if things were different 50 years ago in terms of what these drugs did, but they probably were a little more dangerous back then. That was probably great. That's what I'm saying. So it probably was way more extreme than even what is on the market now i just can't even fathom the idea like i'm trying to think of this in a way that people would understand like imagine you went you know what i'm gonna do today drink five bottles of vodka in one sitting like i'm going to die that's the thing you can't die from acid but you can have a horrible time i mean you could do things that would make you die (laughs) You just you would have what they consider to be a bad trip, yes. which is just a horrible experience. A very bad trip. Yeah, I've I've I mean, it's actually a great documentary on Netflix where people talk about acid, mm. and some celebrities have discussed. They're like, I did it once, I had a horrible time, and I never touched it again. Like that's how bad a bad trip is, because you're locked into it for eight to twelve hours. Oh, just having a horrible time. Oh, that's terrible. Exactly. That's horrible. Why did you know? <laughs> That's why you want to be in apparently a good mood. And I don't think Herbert Mullen was ever in a good mood. I was about to say, he's he was just always having a bad time. Constantly in that bad state of mind. And the thing is, he's not taking the drugs for the funsies. He's self-medicating. So I can only imagine if you're in this terrible mental state and you're like, I'm going to take this hallucinogenic drug that only intensifies my feelings. And my experience with the world around me. He's already delusional. He doesn't need to see more delusions. I just, 
like, I'm not a big fan of saying like drugs ruin someone's mind, but they very well may have with the amount of drugs he was abusing. I mean, if you abuse it, yes, of course. But, you know, if you're just casually taking it, it's different. <clears throat> oh, yeah. So I, that, that I was surprised. When I was like, 10 tabs. Good lordy. That's <laughs> a lot of drugs. Um, I also want to make a note here. Do you when I say Santa Cruz, does that mean anything to you? Santa Cruz? Santa Cruz, California. It I know it. You do, you should know it. Yeah. Because for a good like decade, people were calling it the murder capital of America. Yeah, I think uh was was it Lost Boys? No. There's a there's a really <laughs> tall serial killer who used to kill there. Oh yeah. Ed Kemper. In fact, Ed Kemper uh, and Herbert Mill- Herbert Mullen were killing in Santa Cruz at the same time. So you got you got Mister. I want to make skin suits out of people. No, that's Ed Gein. Okay, you got Ed. Sorry, in Kemper it. is the co-ed killer. Okay, he's the guy who was killing college girls and cutting their heads off. Then he killed his mom and cut her head off. And well, look. I can't keep track of you guys. The easiest way to explain Ed Kemper is that he's like almost seven feet tall. Okay. He's Massive tall, dude. Tall boy. Got um, it. And he decided while he was in prison that he just doesn't want to leave prison. Even though they keep offering him parole, he's like, no, nah, I'm good. Yeah, I don't want to get out. He realizes that he does not know how to function in society. <sighs> Makes sense. But also during this time, there's another man named John Lindley Frazier who killed a family, his a whole family this time, the Oda family, and their secretary. Female hitchhikers begin disappearing in April of 1972, and they're found decapitated. Alice Lou and Rosalind Thorpe go missing. A 79-year-old woman is found raped and murdered in her bathtub. They find the skeletal remains of Mary Gulfoyle, the woman that Mullen killed February 11th, 1973, they also find the remains of Cynthia Shaw and Marianne Pesk, both of their heads, in the Loma Prieta Mountain. Gun sales rise rapidly. Yeah, they gotta protect themselves. The police don't know if this is cult killings, one serial killer, seven serial... Like, this is one time where I am going to give the police a break. <laughs> Santa Cruz is a pretty small town. Think of where you and I live about this kind of metropolis, about 100,000 people. Mm-hmm. And between 1970 and 1973, like even the district attorney just went, this is Murderville, USA. And the people, like the papers called it, you know, it's a sleepy beach town. Santa Cruz is this nice little beach town. And they called it the murder capital of the U.S. for about those three years. So just after finding Mary Gulfoyle's remains, the police find another pretty terrible scene. Four teenage boys shot in their tent in the middle of the woods in Henry Cal State Park. They were Brian Scott Card, David Ulliker, Robert Spector, and Mark Drabelbus. They had built a temporary shelter out of sheets and spare wood, like plastic sheets. Mm. Um, Herbert Mullen discovered them on February 10th, 1973. The boys initially invited him into the shelter, but Herbert was kind of (laughs) pissed because a park ranger had kicked him out while he was trying to do the same thing, which was sleep in the park. Um, mm. Herbert, like, tries to, like, square off and seem like a scary guy and tells them to leave and they're defacing public property. 
And as teen boys are likely to do, they laughed at him. I would. They were discovered a week later when one of the victim's brothers went looking for them. I would have been discovered a week later, too. <laughs> I was just like, I was um, laughing. The scene was pretty gruesome. Like, one of the boys was shot while trying to get out of the plastic tent. Mm. He pretty much, Herbert had picked them off one by one, used the oh, their own rifle that they had brought with them into the woods, and taken about $20 off of their bodies. Oh, wow. So... So he just wanted payback for being told. He's mad. Yeah. He, he was, uh, what's that? He's being petty yeah, he at was this just point. Mad. Yeah. So police decided after Mary Gofoyle's body was found to try and like warn the women of Santa Cruz, like, hey, maybe you should stop hitchhiking because like we don't really know what to do here. Mm-hmm. Like, you keep getting into cars with strangers and y'all are getting sexually assaulted and murdered. So they just assumed that Mary was another one of those victims tied to whoever was doing that. No. It, it February 13th, 1973, Herbert's driving. Sees a man named Fred Perez working in his garden. He pulls into the man's driveway, gets out, shoots him in the chest. Before he can even see if Perez is dead, he drives off. Just drives off. Was was he dead? Yeah, he def- he dies. Oh, okay. Um, Fred's neighbor, Joan uh, Stignero, writes down the license plate number and calls the police. Nice. There you go. He is pulled over and arrested that day. He's silent. He doesn't resist. But things do get bizarre once he's in custody. During the police investigation, like interrogation, he only answers the police by yelling, silence. And he keeps insisting, like, he stopped a disaster it didn't help that just after he was arrested eight days later southern california was hit by a 5.8 magnitude earthquake in point magu that cost the area over a million dollars in damages sir what disaster did you stop well he's saying had you not stopped me this wouldn't have happened my man how many people did you already kill you already sacrificed enough for the gods okay (laughs) Um, eventually he opens up to the police about the voices um, that his father's voice originally ordered him to kill how he gained telepathic permission to murder the four teenage boys while in jail he constantly rants and raves and writes down bizarre theories side note at one point he was in jail with Ed Kemper and Kemper said that he used to just start singing and one night he threw water on Herbert. (laughs) <laughs> and herbert stopped singing he was like and then i gave him peanuts and he said herbert really liked peanuts oh my god but wait, and so then he goes um after that he would ask for permission to sing and then so Ed- edward kemper goes and that's psychological conditioning oh my god he's not wrong <laughs> oh but also god. whoa oh my god <laughs> The day after they pick up Herbert, they search his apartment. They find a Bible, an address book with Gian, Giannara's address listed, newspaper articles about some of his other murders, and a rosary pouch that had belonged to Father Henry. Oh, he took a little trophy. They also find the following note. <clears throat> Let it be known to the nations of Earth and the people that inhabit it. This document carries more power than any other written before. Such a tragedy that as... What has happened should not have happened. And because of this action, which I take of my own free will, I am making it possible to occur again. For while I can be here, I must guide and protect my dynasty. And if that doesn't make sense to you, 
I agree. It didn't make sense to me either. A lot of what Herbert Mullen says doesn't make sense. Hmm. They almost didn't believe that Herbert was acting alone because while he was in prison, they keep finding more bodies. Well, yeah, there are other people killing out there. Exactly. They tried to tie a bunch of the unsolved murders to Mullen, but they compared Mary Gofoyle's, uh, Gofoyle's remains to the other women and determined that whoever had decapitated the other women, the hitchhikers, had a level of skill that Herbert did not. Hmm. If we were watching Criminal Minds, it'd be like, you know, them going, oh, this guy must be a surgeon. Uh, apparently, like, whoever that person was who decapitated them did it like someone who knew what they were doing. Interesting. Um, the Mullen murders were not anatomically precise. So March 1st, 1973, he gets charged with 10 counts of murder. They originally don't charge him with White, Gofoyle, and uh, Tomei. He walks into the court carrying a stack of legal books and attempts to plead guilty to all of them, but the judge is like, no, you can't do that. Because I don't think you are legally competent to represent yourself. You're definitely not, sir. Um, they do think he is sane enough to be tried. Mm -hmm. um, and fun fact, the lawyer who ends up defending Herbert Mullen, James Jackson, also defended Edward Kemper, Ed Kemper and Frazier. Oh, so he got everybody in jail. He was good just job. doing all of I've right. I'm like, you got them all put in prison. Was this on purpose? Yes. Good job, guy. Good um, job. Along with giving him counsel, although Herbert refused it multiple times, they also got him evaluated by multiple doctors. And everyone agrees he's definitely paranoid schizophrenic and that he'd have killed at least 10 people. So they set the trial for July 1973, and it starts on July 30th. This trial was less about the murder, like that he committed murder, and more about if he was sane enough to be held responsible for his crimes. Hmm. The prosecution was hinging their side on the fact that he'd hidden the crime, covered his tracks, and they consider those to be signs of premeditation. The defense pulled out his extensive list of visits to mental health clinics and diagnoses. Um, his lawyer read some of Herbert's more bizarre writings. Uh, I almost don't even want to read this. It's so weird. Um, now you got to read it. Okay. I believe that my father has, has been unequally blamed for my failures. But surely, if he had given me the six-year-old homosexual blowjob oral stimulation that I was entitled to, like most other people get, I would have never taken the LSD without his permission. I'm so glad I didn't have a dad now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was one of his more bizarre theories, that um, his family conspired to hide bisexuality from him, and that he should have been able to experience orgasms courtesy of his family um, at the age of six. That's okay. <clears throat> no, thank you. Yep. Now, Herbert even took the stand at his trial to explain himself. And that ended up being a bad idea. But at first, it seemed like maybe the defense had something going here. He brought a pile of his own notes to the witness box. He rocked back and forth. He blamed his friends, his family, his teachers, because they all wanted him to stop becoming too powerful in the afterlife once he would be reincarnated. He told them that because Einstein had died on his birthday, that he was the designated leader of his generation, and that his birthday gave him a dominant position in reincarnation. Direct quote here. Um, 
This is a one man consenting to be murdered protects the millions of other human beings living in the cataclysmic earthquake tidal area. For this reason, the designated hero and associates have the responsibility of getting enough people to commit suicide and or consent to being murdered every day. So it's not just that he was demanding a sacrifice. This needs to be a consistent sacrifice. Oh, every day. Yes. Which he didn't do, but that's beside the point. <sighs> Herbert told them he didn't think much of his victims, just that he'd been reacting. He blamed his father. And then he asked for his father to be removed from the court so he wouldn't have to look at him. Oh, wow. Um, the judge was like, you can't actually request that. But ultimately, his dad did leave because he was probably having a terrible time. Yeah, I would. I, I would, Yeah, I'd leave, too. He also blamed the Santa Cruz police for not keeping him in jail after he'd been arrested for possession, saying, I never would have killed anyone if they'd kept me in jail. If they don't punish you for breaking the law, what were they even doing? Waiting until I broke a bigger law so they could put me in prison for the rest of my life? Bruh, come on. It would seem that at this point, he's doing a really good job at proving that he is insane. But then the prosecution got to cross-examine him. And he admitted on the stand that he was capable of ignoring the commands that he was getting telepathically from his father. Uh. Because he had ignored the command to kill in December of 1972. That was a time period that I told you that there was a gap Mm -hmm. in the murders. That's the longest gap in all of his crimes. He said he'd heard his father tell him to kill his uncle Enos and he had asked the voice for a different victim. So the prosecution was like, well, you say you're afraid of these voices, but you were able to barter with them. Mm -hmm. Exactly. He, He even said on the stand, I just didn't want to kill anymore. I didn't think it was right. That sentence, I think, was the real clincher for the prosecution because he had just admitted on the stand that he knew right from wrong. Yep. He was not a robot under his father's thumb, as he'd been claiming. He also told the court he'd murdered Joan uh, Giancarla because she was a witness and I didn't want to be punished. She was not a witness. That was the wife who was in the bathtub. Yeah. She wasn't even doing nothing. She mm. might not even heard nothing. Could have had the water on. I don't even know. So then the court appointed psychiatrists um, started talking and none of them believed any of the stuff that Herbert Mullen was saying was his reasoning. Mm -hmm. So he was like, I think the earthquake theory is something that Herbert came up with later after he'd already started killing. Um, His motivation for killing Gianero was because he blamed Gianero for getting him into drugs. And Joan, Kathy, Damon and David were just witnesses. He killed the campers because he thought they were hippies and he developed a hatred of hippies after he had abused drugs so much. So he was saying hippies drew drugs. So it's their fault now. Okay. Um, another psychiatrist of who evaluated him said that he blamed drugs for ruining his life. And that's why he took revenge on James in a weird kind of split though. Uh, a man by the name of Dr. Charles Morris testified. That he believed that Herbert was insane when he had killed the random people, mm. when he had just picked up the woman mm-hmm. and the man, um, and that he is just displaying rationalizations about his other murders. Like he had stopped taking drugs to join the Marines. And when he didn't get in, he killed out of anger. Um, Dr. Morris also testified that Herbert had killed the last man. He felt like in order for him to just get caught, because he was getting tired. The doctor also um, did say that he could have been high while committing some of these murders. 
um, but that he thought that the telepathic permission thing was also just a rationalization Herbert had created in his mind as an afterthought. And he wasn't surprised by Mullen's cosmic sacrifice theory or excuse, as he called it, because he's an individual with a high mental capacity and an interest in the occult psychology and philosophy. It was plain to see from everyone that Herbert was severely mental Ill, mentally ill. But the thing is, to be declared legally insane, the defense has to prove that the defendant did not know what was right or wrong at the time of the killings and that he had a diminished capacity, which is that he didn't understand the meaning of his actions while he was doing them. <laughs> the jury were informed by the defense that motive didn't mean a lot in this case because motives are ambiguous, which is talk about a, a way to Come spin on. it like a lawyer. Oh, my God. However, the prosecution responded to that in their closing statement and said, just because two plus two equals seven in his mind doesn't mean that Mr. Mullen is not responsible for his actions. The defense asked the jury to consider the fact that Mullen kills people because he has to, but he doesn't know why. I suggest that a person who killed 13 people and doesn't know why is mad. The prosecution said there's no question he's mentally ill, seriously mentally ill, but that doesn't mean he's legally insane. He hid the crimes and even ground off the serial numbers on his gun. Oh, yeah, he knew what he was doing. Okay. A jury of six men and six women deliberated for 14 hours and found Mullen sane and guilty August 19th, 1973. He received a first degree murder charge for Kathy Francis and James Gianera. The rest were considered impulsive kills and it was second degree murder. Later on, um, they did a separate case for Dr. Not Dr. Father, mm. uh, Henry to my, to me. And, um, at that point, Herbert just was like, I'm just added on to the pile of other things at this oh point. God. Um, Mullen's defense attorney actually was quoted as saying like, the jury is just as insane as Mullen is. They were afraid he'd get out and kill somebody, which is not an illogical consideration. They didn't want his 14th victim to be one of them. And I'm like, buddy, yes. Yeah, exactly. He's so, He should have been kept in one of the facilities that he was put in several times before. Please. Please, thank you. Um, the prosecution, however was kind of disappointed that they only got two counts of first-degree murder. Herbert himself actually just kind of shrugged off the verdict. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 2025. Oh. He will be in his 80s. Uh, he probably... He, he, he has petitioned the court multiple times to be released and been denied so far so i honestly don't think it'll be a good look for him to get parole i don't i don't think he's gonna get paroled in four years i don't think so either just in case i mean he, he'll be 80 he can't do too <laughs> much damage it it sounds like from some of the things and i wish i could just there's so many quotes from interviews from him where he just says things that make no sense like yeah I just it is very clear that he was completely gone. Mm. Um, and for my sources, which I always like to mention, uh, one of those is called Deadly Voices, The True Story of Serial Killer Herbert Mullen by C.L. Swinney. Uh, the Die Song, which is by Lund, Donald Lund and Jefferson Morgan. That was in 1980. And uh, Murder and Madness, also by Donald Lund. 
And that was a book from 1975. Both of those last two ones are out of print, but do have interesting details. Um, the Die Song is a whole other thing that I didn't even discuss, which is just a song he used to sing in prison, oh. telling people that they were going to die. Oh, that sounds wonderful. It's it, Like I said, he just had a real rough time. And it's just one of those situations of like, I don't entirely disagree with him saying like, Hey, if you had locked me up before I started killing people, none of this would have happened. Because really, he pro- he should not have been out on his own no. for as long as he was. You could have. And the worst just... thing about this is that all of this happened between the time he was eighteen and twenty six. Yeah, that's a short, less than a decade. Completely changed his life. I was about to say, um, can't you just say I want to stay in your institutes? Well, remember the first one? They said that he didn't seem to be really cooperating with treatment. That's mm. another facet of this. Okay, true. You gotta um, be. You gotta be willing to. Right. You have to really be willing to do the work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to experience any benefit from it. Okay. But yeah. So what do you have to tell us about today? All right. So this week I had to do a dive deep okay. down into my collection of paranormal info. Nice. Yes. Um, so since the month of March is over by the time this episode will be out, I've moved on to April. Um, and since April is like the month before my birthday, I just figured, hey, I'm going to do stuff I want to do. You know, do stuff I really, really, really like, and that's what I'm going to do. So, I'm just going to let you guys know I have some, I I do have some, you know, pretty cool books in my collection. Blah blah. blah. Anyway, (laughs) while I was like searching, um, I found an old book of Greek plays, and yeah, Hmm. and like to those that don't. Or to those who know me, I love Greek mythology. <laughs> and those who don't know me, I really love Greek mythology. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. All right. So there was a play that I hadn't read before. It's really weird. Um, so so this is a story that I'll be covering today. So, it, like, don't worry. It has ghosts in it. Okay. And some demons as well. So... Just sit back, relax, and enjoy oh. because it's about to go down. Okay. <laughs> All right. So this story is about three unknown philosophers slash alchemists um, and an average Joe. And they all work together. Um, so they go on a journey, which actually may be one of the world's first ghost hunts. Do they have cool Greek names? I said unknown. Oh. I had to make up names. I did. <laughs> Boo, that's sad. Okay, anything. Yeah. I like this first ghost hunt. Yes. Um. So this play begins. One of the philosophers, we'll call him, I think, I, what was his name? Bank. Um. As he's testing two of his students... On the principles of of you know, of what he teaches, um, 
So he's obviously flirting with his female student while he's picking on his male student. Um, when his partner, um, I named the stance, um, he runs in and tells him that, you know, his other partner, his name is um, Ramless. I try. I tried to make that one <laughs> as creak as I could. I Romulus and Remus. Yes. Um, so they receive word of an apparition appearing at a uh, like a nearby library. So, um, so they rush there because they may be philosophers, but they're also into researching the unknown. Um, Is this? I mean, the Ghostbusters first main ghost is at a library too is that what it is you said it was a library oh hmm. anyway but you know they've never seen a ghost so they rush over there to see you know this ghost and they actually find it um just, you know it's by one of the bookshelves like reading and they're like astonished because they're like Psh. it's a you know it's a full body apparition <laughs> there you go you can say that um, and I swear to you, they didn't know what to do, so they tried to fight it, but they they got scared off. Um, so after this happened, they got kicked out of their lecture hall. Um, they they taught at because their interests were in the unknown. So they soon decide, you know, let's start our own little thing get, uh, for ourselves, and we're gonna offer our services to help people um, with their paranormal problems. So you mean become Ghostbusters? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> you are not getting the reference here? No. What the hell? These three guys are like, hey, there's a ghost inside of this library. They try and fight it. They fail. They get kicked out of their job. At the college. What is... And then they offer their services. Yo, is the whole Ghostbusters movie based off of this? Is this Ghostbusters? Hmm. So this is where the alchemy comes in. They craft the containment... (laughs) You are killing me, Brian. No freaking way. They craft the containment unit of sorts to capture these spirits. That's... (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. <clears throat> this whole thing is based off of the Ghostbusters. The Ghostbusters pretty much stole their story from a Greek. Let me finish my story, please. Oh my god. No, I'm, I'm just glad you're not getting it. Okay. Um. So, business is not, you know, going well for them. So, everyone calls them frauds. And they're just, you know, they just laugh in their faces. And, like, they're out on the streets, they're advertising themselves, and finally a guy comes up to them, and he's, like, he's desperate. So he's, like, he's, like, are you guys serious? And they're, like, uh, absolutely. So he asked him, you can check out his great hall that he's holding a banquet at um, later at night. And there's activity happening there. So finally, these guys get a break, and <laughs> they head over there with their containment unit. Um, they look like they're ready to go to war, so... Everyone sees them as highly confused. Yeah, they say don't cross the streams. <laughs> so they make it to the hall, so, you know, the great hall, and they see they don't see anything, but they can sense the presence of a spirit. Is his name Slimer? 
<laughs> they decided to split up. Smart choice, right? So, Bank goes wandering around down the hallway when he feels a spear attack him. Um, so, it even leaves like a, a trail of like excrement as it. Ectoplasm? I said excrement as it leaves. It smells horrible. It stands in Ramblis. They meet up and they're like so excited. So they're finally able to corner. God damn it, Brittany. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even doing anything. Mm, no, you're not. So they're finally able to corner the spirit in, in the dining hall. And they thoroughly destroy it. <laughs> well... We're trying to get the ghost nicotinement. Um, they finally get it in. And let me tell you, they are flying high right now. The word spreads and more people start to come to them. And they even have to hire more people to help. <sighs> now nearby, there's a woman that's experiencing some, some paranormal activity in her home. Like think of paranormal that like the movie Paranormal Activity with all the crazy stuff is happening, very demonic stuff. So, so she gets these um, the three to check out, you know, and they find nothing, um, but they keep her in the back of their heads, you know, because it seems like it may lead to something. Um, Meanwhile, business is moving. And remember the average Joe I mentioned before? Yeah, he gets hired. Um, he knows next to nothing about what's going on, but they needed help and he needed work. So, and and he's a very devout person, so that kind of works out. Um, now back to this woman. We'll call her um, Ripley. Um, one day in her home. She gets attacked by the demonic presence, and she ends up being possessed by it. At the same time, her neighbor is possessed as well. He didn't have any paranormal activity happening. It just popped up one day, and it hit him with a pow. So, now her neighbor goes out running around like a person possessed and gets picked up, and of course... Mm -mm. picked up of course and instead of like taking him to like prison or whatever i guess the stocks or the jail or you call that um they take him to these guys uh banks and 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 his buddies and you know they they quickly realize oh yeah this dude is possessed by a spirit could it be zul no zul does not possess him the gatekeeper Gozier? Oh my fucking god. <laughs> so his house is right next to Ripley, so they're like, okay, this is kind of weird. Like what a unique name for her. I know, right? Amazing. I just you know popped in my head. Um <laughs> big heads over there. Anyway, because he's like he's trying to court Ripley, so he's like He's going. He's going to meet her that night anyway. So she tries to assault him as soon as he walks in because she has this horny demon inside of her. Um, Banks, her, Banks, Bank gets her under control. 
by giving her a drink and to put her to sleep for a bit. Um, now, during all this, there's a skeptic trying to, trying to disprove these guys. We'll call him Pecker. Because he's a Pecker. <laughs> um, so he, he eventually finds out that they're keeping these spirits um, deep in their home. So he gets this mob together to to prove that they're frauds because, you know, he's a hater like that. Um, they destroy the containment for the spirits and they're all released. Banks and everybody get thrown in jail because when the containment was breached or destroyed, um, it kind of like blew up. So they're accused of witchcraft. Um, later on, they... Later on, they, they were found innocent by the king, and since he needed their help to get the spirits under control, he's like, okay, you guys, we'll handle this shit real quick. Um, little did they know that the two demons that were possessing Ripley and her neighbor were working together to summon their master to Earth. They finally meet back up and start the ritual to summon their master. Shut up. <laughs> Let me just finish it real quick. <laughs> Bank, and the, yeah, Bank and the crew, they show up in time to see the master has been summoned. Now this demon is one that takes on the form of whatever someone thinks of and destroys them with it. So if you go on with a clear mind, then you should be okay. Well, let me just tell you that Stance is a pretty freaking pure of heart guy. Um, so he's like, well, if I think of something sweet, it will hurt me. <laughs> and this is where I have to, I have to, um, leave my notes alone to <laughs> tell you that this is April Fool's joke. Your commitment to this. I realized what it was. I know. And I wasn't, I was like. No, I realized it was an April Fool's joke at about um, when you said the word containment unit. But I was like, that beautiful commitment. There was a lot of commitment there, Brian. I was trying my hardest not to fucking laugh. And you. Making, I was trying to make you laugh. Yeah, I know. <laughs> You're like, and you got it like right off the fucking bat. And I was like, Brittany doesn't remember Ghostbusters all like that. She's not like me. <laughs> I love the Ghostbusters. Uh. <laughs> I was going to start saying make me quotes, but I thought that would be rude. <laughs> anyway, well, I wrote a note is like, if she didn't get it <laughs> by now, <laughs> I'm going to hit her with full Ghostbusters right now. So the Stay Puff Mushroom Man. So he thinks of um, marshmallow. I just said mushroom marshmallow. Yeah, he's like, he thinks of marshmallows, not <laughs> not just any marshmallows. A marshmallow mascot from his childhood. It appears as a 100 foot marshmallow that quickly <laughs> makes its way towards them. For like a couple of minutes, I really was like, wait. Did, did did is this where the original concept came from? But like, this was wow. Yeah. Um. Eventually, they they are able to dispose of said giant marshmallow mascot, um, which was the form of the demon, and they sent it back 
to Dozier. <laughs> Hell. Um, later on, as everybody is rejoicing that of the destruction of the marshmallow, um, they're chanting a sort of song. Oh yeah. For these for these heroes. Now I can't actually say that song because there's um copyright. Oh, but it goes Dan it, Dan it, Dan it. There's something strange. There's something strange. In the neighborhood. In your neighborhood. Who are you gonna call? These guys. <laughs> yes. It was an April Fool's joke because this comes out on April first. So I That was good. That was good. I I was I so took today seriously. Yeah, I know. And I was like, well, I thought about this like two weeks ago. I was like, what is, what can I do? Like, because I'm ending uh, the Women's History Month. And I was like, oh, well, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be April Fool's Day. There you go. I'm going to do something funny. (laughs) Well, it was funny. I cackled. Oh, my God. Many, many times. I'm glad you got a kick out of it. I I was like, how can I write this? So that she couldn't possibly get it right off the bat. And I was like, I didn't do a good job at it. Oh, man. But yeah, um, that was that was April Fool's joke about Ghostbusters. And paranormal stuff. Always fun. Mm-hmm. I told you it was going to be short. That's true. That's true. You <laughs> did tell me that. Oh, That's goodness. because you decided to make a joke. <laughs> but it's all good hey if you heard this episode and you listened this far and you didn't enjoy it i don't know what to tell you okay i tried my best you know what if you listen this far and you didn't enjoy it i feel like you should write brian an email <laughs> caught podcast at gmail.com oh yeah what should an email be talking about i don't know tell him what you'd liked and didn't like you should have you should have used more Greek mythology. True. I was really excited for a second. <laughs> That's why I was like real I was like, wait, we're gonna we're talking about mythology? Okay, I'm here for it. I can talk about some Greek mythology if you really want me to. You're like, this is an unknown story. I was like, Oh, this is exciting. <laughs> and then I was like, A library? And you're like, What are you talking about? I'm getting gaslit hella hard over here <laughs> in the beginning. Ghostbusters. What I was trying, to, I was going, to, I was trying to say Ghostbusters. What the hell is that? And I, and I was going to, you know, that there's just... no way you could ever look me straight <laughs> in the face and say Ghostbusters. What is that? Oh my god! You know, I was finishing up my notes today, and I had to watch Ghostbusters too. You had to watch the second one? No, the first one. Oh, okay. It. Well, it's always a good time. Yeah. Oh, there's another story about these guys, and they do have to battle it. An evil painting. That comes oh to yes, life. yes. Where that nasty pink sludge oh, yeah. comes out of the painting, and like the they have to animate the the statue of Athena to, <laughs> to have her march in the streets of Athens and get. <laughs> this can this joke cannot work twice in a row. Oh my god. Plus, okay. it's going to be another four years before April first will be on the day that we release the podcast. So you got a while. I I can believe me. I will surprise you. 
All right. Don't don't look at the calendar next year because <laughs> <laughs> Brian's going to do something silly. I got I got it. Filling in my bones. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, it was a pleasure. Yes, always. That was very fun. And we will see you all next week. Yes. Um, please, please, uh, subscribe to us on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. And we're now on Pandora. Finally. So I guess you can subscribe there as well. Follow us on Pandora or whatever. I don't even know what you can do. Neither do I. Um, leave reviews on anywhere you can. Yes, on anywhere you can. Uh, like Brittany said earlier, leave us an email at cult po- cult podcast. At gmail.com. God, I almost go. forgot it. Um, <laughs> uh, you can also leave us voicemails at Anchor. And that link is in our description. I don't really know it. so No worries. <laughs> it's anchor.fm slash when killers get caught. Uh, and you can also find Brittany on TikTok. On Caught Podcast. Always at Caught Podcast. Every day. Yes. And you can find me on Twitch when I stream foxy trainer foxy trainer which i i found out i actually can change that oh, okay so i'm pretty i'm, I'm not going to change it i just could make it something spooky yeah i guess so but yeah you catch me there every sunday except for last sunday because i didn't feel like streaming so because you felt like playing fallout i did feel like playing fallout it was fun i leveled up so much <laughs> <laughs> but anyway thanks for listening and i hope you have a good week yep bye <laughs>